You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Atlanta Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are fresh off the ATA trail and back in the studio, if you will. The makeshift studio. The makeshift studio. And we're back at Adam's house, my house. And we are ready to start talking about some habitat management, hunting strategy. Um, and we're not doing product review because I feel like everybody else is doing that. On- I-, I feel like social media is blown up with product reviews right now. And it's yeah. like, guys, I've seen this before. Oh, yeah. So here's a long list of the new items that you can use in habitat management that were shown at the ATA. And that's all, folks. And, <laughs> yeah. um, so Matt and I have been discussing different things, different topics. Of course, we love all your guys' input um, and ideas and things that you would like us to cover here on the podcast. And one of them that always comes up is managing property on a budget. But before we get into that, let's just remind you that this is on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Wherever you're listening, whether it be Stitcher, iTunes, Google, whatever it is, please leave us a review if you like it. Give us a star. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. A like. Wherever it's at. A share. Please just continue to share it with your friends. That's how we grow and get this thing Going to more people and more habitat improved. That's what it's all about. Matt, anything else before we start jumping into this? No, because we we haven't avoided this at all. We we often share these similar practices, but we don't necessarily title it, you know, cost effective habitat management. And you know, we've shared our story of kind of where we come from and and uh, how applicable this was for us growing up and always wanting to do something to better our hunting and do something to better the habitat. But, you know, just because you're 30 and I'm 26 doesn't mean that we still don't do these practices and we do them and prescribe them and recommend them all across the country and clients' properties. But there's so many folks out there who are hungry for this information because they can get out there and do it and use it, and it makes a big impact. So I'm happy. I'm excited to be able to share it. And hopefully, you know, if you're out there and it's a, whether you're you're just starting to get into habitat management and don't want to dump a bunch of money and just kind of, you know, work your way in there, these are the things that are can create a huge impact for your property. And I'm excited to get out there and share them. Let's just go ahead and say it. This is the podcast to avoid divorce. <laughs> yeah yeah i think for for myself i'll probably speak for both of us but growing up and managing and trying to do everything we could on a budget it's almost like regardless of however far successful uh we get in life we're 
managing with <laughs> on a budget is so ingrained in us that I don't think it's ever going to change. And and it doesn't matter if it's on our own turf or our client's turf and we get there and they're like, "What about this?" I honest I automatically start thinking dollar signs. How much is that going to cost? Is the juice worth the squeeze? You know, as we kind of opened up the show, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go there, but I actually, I am going to go there. Um, with with the whole topic of products and stuff like this, you know, what we're going to share today isn't like a product-based thing, period. It's more of, okay, nature goes through these processes. How can we kind of tap in and harness the natural process that's going to happen and make a a huge bang for the buck versus spending that buck? Mm-hmm. And why why would I not just use this resource that has shown us year in and year out that these things are going to happen and deer are going to use them and wildlife are going to use them to their advantage. So why not use that resource and save money instead of spending money on gimmicks and marketing dollars and blah, blah, blah. Like, let's just get to the root of it and, and, and work with Mother Nature in the right way that's going to make a huge improvement for your property. So that's what we're sharing. Nature in its, <laughs> this sounds stupid, but nature in its natural setting is the most well-oiled machine oh. you can find. Yes. But through time and lack of management, we've stepped away from that and put her in a in a bind with invasive species, lack of natural management, and that may be prescribed fire or large herbivores um, in the setting or across the landscape and now it's we've removed both of those in a lot of instances to where the introduction of invasive species and everything we just disrupting that natural cycle whatever it may be or we've stopped letting the food chain run its course and uh we've let some species get out of control or overpopulated um and therefore they consume more of a native habitat uh maybe it's a couple plants or whatever it is but um through it all, basically, in big picture, we've removed the natural cycle cycle of nature. And, we dis- and, we've disrupted it. Yeah, for sure. So, a lot of these techniques are, or every technique that we do is usually trying to just replicate what occurred before settlement and also what just occurs naturally as we progress through time. So, anyway... Matt, let's, let's do it. Let's dive in. Notes. Let's roll it. Number one, you know, there's, there's, I don't know. I think it's just a, kind of a craze back in the '90s, early 2000s, of um, planting native warm season grasses and like just converting, you know, crop fields or, or or other, you know, types of field pasture fields and planting native warm season grasses. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I abs before we do this one i just want to say we absolutely love native grasses. yeah like, oh my gosh yeah the prairie habit or the prairie ecosystem is one of the the one that You're just about gets efficiency me, yeah you want to see me get diversity you want to see Woo. me nerd out let's just say show me a native prairie and i will nerd out on you um and talk about all the different species the problem and i think this is where you're going or it's in the notes or maybe not let's just I'm go road here but um, the problem with some of our native grass plantings is we only plant five species in that mix. So we have five species across that uh, area 
Um, and some of those aren't the best, or there's, or it's lacking some of my favorite ones of the native grass um, species. And so it's important that if we are doing that, we plant lots of different species in that mix. But with fortunately, with that not... comes a very large bill. Yeah, and the reason for that is because it is so rare. Like we don't have the native grasses, the prairies, like we did way back when. So getting seed, harnessing seed, is more expensive, and it you have to pay to play the game with native warm season grasses. And there's of course government programs out there that help offset cost stuff, and then you got to factor in the drill, running a drill, um, a tractor, the high price of seed, all that preparation. Um, herbicide that goes into preparing just to plant that native warm season grasses again multiple multiple before you forget that or before you move past that multiple treatments of herbicide yes and then it takes years Years. to get established and when we say years three to four years before it actually is fully uh, established um, under the right circumstances rainfall drought etc again there's nothing wrong with this process However, an alternative that will produce similar results and save you some money is just converting those fields, whatever it may have been, into old field and managing old field style. And what that is is basically letting that native seed bank, whatever is in that ground, come back out. And you're just managing that and and looking, identifying what species come back Maybe there is some herbicide treatments throughout, but usually it's a kind of a spot treatment. It's not an overall, you know, I'm treating my tw- this 20-acre field. It's spot here or spot here and selecting the species that you want to basically make seed and grow. And that seed bank in some places has absolutely shocked us as like, holy cow, I I didn't know this was here or Man, would you look? We've got this, we got that, we got this. Oh, and I it thought you produces, were going to say, would you look at that? Oh, would you look at that? But it, it's crazy to see, wow, that seed survived however many years in that seed bank. And all we did was just get it to a situation or a, an environment in which it could express itself. And that, and let's go, let's go to a pasture. If If we have a pasture... All it is is spraying out the fescue. A pasture of fescue. Let's just or say smooth cool, se- cool yeah. season mixes. So there's orchard grass and fescue. Step number one is going to be spraying that grass with a herbicide during a specific time of the year when the when the natives are dormant. So a lot of times that's in the fall, uh, November, or and of course this is wherever your area is, basically when that cool season grass is the only thing green. Or in the spring. So in our area, it's March through April. And you're spraying it. And it's and that herbicide treatment is not that expensive. We've done it. We've prescribed it on clients' properties. And you can cover a large area and do that, kill that cool season grass. And then that next spring, boom, immediately you're getting growth of that native seed bank because it's not competing or trapped or blocked by that cool season grass so you're getting those native species back instead of planting them in the native warm season grass mixtures like we talked about earlier and paying for them you're seeing basically okay what's left in my soil what's left in the seed bank letting it grow and if you have you know there's always going to be some you know most likely invasives that come up or you know less desirable species you just go in 
You treat them each year, spot treat them, and move on. But within a year, you can have great cover produced by your native seed bank. Absolutely. And for me, when you think about that, whenever you do this just old field management, you get a lot of times you're going to get much more diversity in that growth versus planting a just a straight native grass mix. And then, because, I mean, we saw it two weeks ago on a client's property, um, traveling down the road through the property and you're looking and you see this just kind of mix of native grasses and shrubs and different species and you're like wow that's that's that looks really good right there and then you come to a big flat area that's native grasses but you look and it it's almost all big blue Indian grass and a little bit of little blue and you're like that was planted because it's completely grass mm-hmm. there's and no forbs mixed in with no. those grasses and forb for you for you deer guys that's just basically food for the deer broadleaf plants yeah and so that's kind of the the biggest difference in in native grasses versus old field management. And, uh, and what, you know, if you want those forbs mixed in again, like we said, you gotta, you gotta pay for them to be in that mixture and they get expensive. So why not let your seed bank express itself and see, man, there's two reasons why you mentioned one, but the other one, why forbs or when you think about like butterfly milkweed and why it's so expensive, you're like, how, well, we don't have, typically huge fields of butterfly milkweed and we just run a combine through there and harvest the seeds a lot of these native forbs or wildflowers that you think of are hand-picked in prairie settings and and so that's why it gets so cost effective is they have to hand pick and a lot of the flowers or a lot of the seeds are like little floaty uh, wind they're rips. carried by yeah they're carried and by the wind so it takes a lot of seed to amount to a pound so a lot of a, effort to get that seed into a bag that you can plant yes so that's why it gets so expensive but anyway um so a lot of times we see if you're doing the old field your forb production especially within the first year is really good like you have a quite a bit of food that can be grown just by that native seed bank and you know, we're going to, we're going to kind of flip side it here. There's other options with native warm season grasses. Let's say you do go down that route or that route you bought a place and you have the native warm season grasses already in place. What are some of the options that you can do to make money with those native warm season grasses? Uh-oh, this is a can of worms right here. We're going to open it though. Oh, uh, I'm I'm happy to open it. Happy to. And of course, if you're in CRP ground, you know, make sure your regulations, you can do this within the program, but. Or not just CRP, but it's, it's uh whatever government program. Yeah, you if may you're be in. in a government program with, with your native grass stand, it's important to check the regulations, see if you could do this. But when you think about a beautiful stand of native grasses, I automatically think, wow. Because this comes from my cattle roots growing up on a cattle farm, I think, wow, that's some incredible grazing for some cows. That's potential right there. Especially during the summer months. That's where it gets its that's where it can be huge hugely beneficial to the cattle. So if you haven't figured it out by now, when we're talking about other ways to make income on your native grass stands, it's leasing out grazing rights. Whoa, what just happened? Did he just Did you say cattle? Is this a hunting 
podcast and some guys promoting Cow. grazing and cows. Oh, oh. Yes, of course we are. If you haven't figured it out by now, we're more natural, natural ecosystem. Well, it, it just goes back to a multi-use property. How there's so many more of those out there. We've got to address the fact that, hey, we can actually use cattle to benefit the property and, and make some income for you that if you want to dump back into hunting or want to dump back into habitat management, hey, here's an option. You can do this. Yep. Let's, not, let's not just say this is, this is the, only, the only possibility I can do for my farm and, and you know, don't just sell yourself short and sell your farm short of its possibilities. Let's, let's branch out there, think outside the box and say, let me actually just use the cattle. Let me feed them with these warm season grasses. Again, if that if if you're in a program, if you can do that, or if you're not, and you just have them, man, you can do it if you have cattle or rent out that land to a cattle farmer. Yeah, it's to that me, it's that simple. And we talked about it earlier, and we talked about it on multiple podcasts. But we're trying to replicate nature, work with her, not against her. And historically speaking, large herbivores were across the landscape. And so, by that, we usually mean buffalo, elk. But now, we don't have that option. So, cattle is our best option. And so, it's better for the soil, and it's better for the animals, too. A lot of research suggests that cattle in these native grass situations are more beneficial to species like the northern bobwhite quail. Right. Not to mention the, the, the cattle gains off of warm season grasses versus versus a end of fight full fescue you have <laughs> i know that's a diff, that's a whole different podcast but the gains a cow can get off of warm season grasses during summer months is much better than fescue with end of fights so there's a big potential right there yes absolutely. For, for healthier cattle and again i don't want people to think that oh my gosh they're, they're letting cattle into the warm season grasses they're just going to mow it down no, this is a practice that needs to be managed. We're not saying go in and consume all the warm season grasses. It's a, you know, we've talked about before rotational grazing. It's kind of a, okay, think of your grass or your, your tonnage that you have there. All you're doing is really consuming one third and moving on. One and third and the other two thirds are trampled. Trampled and boom, kick back, and it, recycle, yes. and, and you have a healthier, productive uh, ecosystem in those grasses so we're not talking about just mowing it down lit pie kind of deal that's that's not what we're saying think of it as consuming a third trampling and moving on quickly through think, these areas think of a a, a herd of cows whatever a, a bigger herd of cows on one acre for a day and then they move to the next acre and then the next acre the third day and the next acre and so by doing that um, and then you're removing them in, let's just say, August, that still gives the native grass plenty of time to regroup, grow, and provide fantastic bedding for the rest of the wildlife throughout the fall and winter. Uh, and when you think about, for, Matt mentioned it, but gains, you're not really, you're not going to find a better forage during the summer months for your cows than native grasses. Native summer, basically these are summer perennial grasses that are growing, providing fantastic forage, while fescue is providing endophytes and, if, if and you, going dormant. If you really want to sit back and, and just scratch your head on something, go and research endophytes and fescue, and then think about 
the summertime and why so many fields across the country are devoted to fescue. Just just research it. I'm not even going to mention anymore, but just research it and think about it for a second. And you'll be like, what? I didn't even know that. Yeah, It's not publicized that much. There's research on it, good research on it. But just go and look, educate yourself. You'll sit there and scratch your head and be like, I, I don't understand this, but whatever. And for and so this this whole idea is exactly what we're in the process of doing on my family farm and the home base of trying to get this broke up instead of being straight cool season pastures of fescue and orchard grass, but going back to these rougher areas where we can plant native grasses. And in some instances, just spray off the fescue and let the native grasses come back to where we have pretty much, it's it's not just, think of it like this. These areas of native grasses are now going to be designated bedding areas, um, but we're going to have some of the best grazing during the summer months. So we're going to have, I, I, I scratch my head and go, how are we not using this practice more throughout the landscape? And when you think of, for me, growing up, Matt, it's a little different for you, but growing up for me, it was always the Flynn Hills, the Flynn Hills, the mm-hmm. Flynn Hills, because it's all native grass. It's pretty much native prairie, and we put so many cows on it during the summer months and graze that because we get fantastic gains on the cows throughout the summer. And then as soon as fall hits, the cows are shipped out of there, and then we see these pictures of giant deer that get killed in these areas. And it's just, it, basically, we're trying to replicate that um, on a small scale here in the Ozarks. And and one of the other factors is that, you know, a lot of these rougher areas were warm season grasses, high four production, had fire run through them. And it's just returning that state and then u- utilizing cattle to improve, to, well, to, to, to feed them off of you know, non-endophyte you know, feed um, during the summer months, get gains that they wouldn't otherwise see. And then it helps the wildlife. It, it It's just a process or an option for people to use instead of going with the status quo. Yeah. For us, and this is something we're trying to do on the family farm, but we're actually, and, and I, Here's a short story on my life. When I was growing up, it was like, I can't wait to have the family farm and kick the cows out. But now I've come to the realization that I'm actually looking to add more acres of grazing, but it's going to be grazed at a specific time of the year. And the rest of the time of the year, it's going to be left to the wildlife to do their thing. And so instead of having closed canopy forests and then open pasture of fescue, we're going to have a mix of let's just say pasture of native grasses and forbs and shrubs. And then we're going to have woodlands and savannas that we can also graze at specific times of the year. And then we'll have our areas of cool season mixes. Instead of just having two things, we'll have four things to graze. And that also means better areas devoted to wildlife. So So. in a nutshell, if you have native warm season grasses, and you can get by with it, doesn't break any um, guidelines or anything, graze them. There's probably a farmer out there who would say, yeah, I'd put cattle in there for a little bit, but it has to be in a managed way, get some income, and then devote that back to the property. 
because you never you wouldn't have otherwise had that income there so might as well put it back in the property and maybe use some of these other techniques that we're going to get ready to talk about but first how how do you well they're sitting there going how do i find the the right guy who's going to come in and actually graze it the correct way and not graze my native grasses into the into the ground one of the best ways you can probably find that is go into your local nrcs or soil and water um office and talking to them about some of the guys that are entered into these programs that have native grasses and are understanding rotational grazing and then get their number from them or just find out their name and contact the man and go see his operation see if it's what you're looking for and uh start from there and one of the uh one of our clients we've actually prescribed this very thing on his property he is in oklahoma and a lot of the property it was it was a large one they had they had both cattle and wanted it to be a, a great place for recreation for their family. But cattle was a very large portion of their property. And at this time, they only had, oh, I don't know how many acres of pasture, but they had the potential to increase the amount of tonnage that that property produced for the cattle. And all they had to do was go in and cut cedars and use prescribed fire through those areas. And they're going to have incredible areas of native warm season grasses, and forbs that the cattle are going to move through quickly and on a rotation throughout the summer months and they're going to get pulled off the pasture and then that's a lot of a lot of area for deer to be bedding and using during the winter months so this is this is for real people are doing this and and excited about it because otherwise it was just cedar kind of thickets and random openings in the woods they didn't know how to hunt it they were afraid to go in there but now it's going to be income producing and improve the hunting so it's a win-win for them in their instance it's the whole holistic approach that people are talking about that you see um, across the country people are trying to get back to um, whole foods is kind of organic and grass-fed beef so they're trying to rotate the cows and keep them to where they don't have to feed hay and do all these other feed grain and um, and as their people are starting to do this they're realizing how fantastic it is for the wildlife and how they're seeing more quail and everything like that so it's just a new approach, uh, a new management technique that is really catching on, and, and hopefully more and more people are doing it. Next is that up. pretty well no, I think beat, that... the, beat the native grass, old field, <laughs> dead horse right there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity for a property if you find yourself in that situation. But next, we're going to dive into options for food plots that can save you money over time and, and a couple of key tips that, okay, hey, you know, longevity of the food plot, we're going we're gonna to recommend that you do this each year to these plots and, and you will see a better stand year after year after year. And now we're comparing, comparing perennials versus annual crops for food plots. And I'll just say it. I think this, I would, I would put a lot of money in betting, not that I'm a big gambler or a gambler at all, but I would bet that a large across the landscape or across the country that a majority of the money that people have for their management on their farm, and I say management in air quotes there, um, that the the amount of money that they can spend on their farm is put into food plots. No, 100%. It's not put into TSI programs or anything like native grass or, programs. Or, or mineral blocks. Or mineral blocks. It's... <laughs> Let's let's. There's three things that people are going to spend their money on most: food plots, mineral blocks, or feed. Yeah, and that's about it. Uh, that that to me is like okay. Well, tra trail cameras to monitor monitor yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
And so this is one of those things that, and I know this wholeheartedly, that there comes times where you're like, food plots are just so expensive. I don't know if I can afford planting them this year. Mm -hmm. And so there are other options. And when we're talking about other options, we're saying, okay, instead of instead of planting twice a year on a, on a given food plot, and that would be a spring annual mix or a spring crop, and then going back in and planting during the fall, that's two times you have to pay for seed. What if we devote more acreage to perennials, which come back each year and manage those in a way that will save you money, save you time, and still produce a great crop throughout an entire growing season. So I think if we if we look at those numbers, you're going to see, okay, I'm, I'm spending less time going to the hardware store or whatever, getting seed. It's just cheaper for me to say, this amount of acreage is always devoted to perennials, and I'm going to manage it this way. And over time, I'm going to have a lot of tons produced throughout a year, and I'm going to spend less time doing it because I'm selecting varieties or I'm managing it in a way that I'm not out there as much disturbing the property, spending my money, but I'm still getting a good crop or a good stand of whatever it may be. How do I do that? What do I do? Help me out here. Yeah, one of the biggest things we see with this debate is I don't have a lot of equipment. I don't have much time at all to come and take care of it, spray it. Um, and I just want to have some a little area that's got great forage. And this is where we get into planting these perennials. And we say this very cautiously when it comes to planting perennials because that's kind of something that a lot of our invasives have have come from planting perennials. But when it comes to food plot perennials, we really try to promote clover. Clover's Multiple great. species and, of clover. And, and then you can throw in other things. I know they're not... That are very uh, cheap. They're very cheap. I mean, we're we're talking alfalfa. You know, that's not as cheap. But having just a mix of that, or having to throw in, in uh, chicory, you can you can do that and have great diversity within a perennial stand. It doesn't or have to be a single you species. You can step away from that and say, let's just plant in some millets or milos in these clover things, just sure. to help get something else growing. And, and we've said this in past podcasts. But as you plant legumes and they're fixating nitrogen, there's there's nitrogen pulled from the air put into the soil so there's got to be something planted to pull that nitrogen back out or weeds are going to do that for you that's why you see so much weed production in clover stands because all that clover is operating working and putting nitrogen back into the soil there's only a certain amount that that clover is going to take back out so something's going to use it it's not just going to go to waste right and a lot of times that's weeds and that's why you see a lot of weeds four years in three to four years into a clover stand is there's been a lot of nitrogen fixated over those three four years and now there needs to be something to tap into that pull it back out of the soil and put it back in the form of forage and if you don't do that nature's going to do that for you and that's probably going to be in a form of what you might call a weed correct so you can do that a couple of different ways in the fall you can plant wheat you need to plant something that's not hardy a legume or it's going to be speeding that process up even more so in the fall you're going to plant wheat oats some sort of rice or some small cereal grain yep and and it's not even a a huge pound per acre you don't have to plant 100 pounds per acre you can plant 50 you can plant 75 and and 
apply it, broadcast it to this uh, clover stand, and walk away. And those are very cheap. We're, uh, t- we're talking $12 for, or 13 bucks in our area for a 50-pound bag of wheat. Doesn't have to be anything special. Nope. Just broadcast right for throw it rain, out there. Drill it, broadcast it, cult it, pack it, whatever it is. Um, and, and you can have great forage. Now you've got forage in the form of clover and an oat or clover or wheat, cereal rye. Um, and then in the summer months, you can also plant, like I mentioned earlier, millet, milo, some very cheap seed um, in like, that clover stand. And, a lot of people are probably scratching their head. Why, why, would I, why would I plant a millet or a sorghum in my clover? Does that even make sense? I, you know, you probably never have seen that happen. However, let's, let's just think about this for a second. Okay, we're, we're, we're creating a longevity in our perennial stand by taking out that excess nitrogen. But you know what I love to see in, in my clover plots in the spring and early summer? I love to see turkeys, mm-hmm. like big wads of turkeys. And let's say we've got that structure now, that that area that, and it's a great place to bug because that's clover brings that in. And now I've got let's say some milo in there. That's a great place for for young turkeys broods to go in and hide. They can escape. They're gonna be in that plot. I don't know what the deal is, but I feel like if I haven't seen a picture of that food plot on the side of a bag, then I don't believe in it or I don't want to plant it. Like, let's think outside the box and just say, hey, I know that clover is going to produce excess nitrogen. Let me give something to it that that can provide more benefit and basically harness that extra nitrogen. It may not look, it may look kind of weird, but guess what? There's there's times of the year that it's going to be extremely beneficial for that milo to be within that clover. And that is getting broods through a really tough uh, vulnerable stage try it one of the the mindset that we fight so much um, is when we plant something that's the only thing we want to see growing it's like if i plant white clovers some some strand of white clover i only want to see that in my food plot and if anything else comes up i'm gonna spray it mow it i'm gonna get it out there i would rather see a mix of red clover white clover and ragweed growing than just straight white clover and so that's just a (laughs) uh it's it's just a it's a fight that we always see it's a different mindset and and it's okay it's okay to have really like a kind of a the thought process of efficiency within a clover stand but we can't deny the fact that a ragweed plant growing in clover can still be beneficial to wildlife. It may not be what we want to see. However, it can certainly be used to benefit wildlife. So I don't I don't think that we should hate it as much as we do or we, we think we do. And that's why, you know, throwing in a small grain during the fall time to harness that, that excess nitrogen, you may limit the amount of, you know, summer annual weeds that you see. But a lot of times, a lot of times summer annual weeds or broadleaf that deer quite frequently frequently consume during the summer summertime. So hey, instead of looking at it as necessarily a weed, let's think about what clover needs, those stands of clover, and think, okay, you know, that's just a little bit of deer food out there, extra deer food. Cool. Whatever. Yep. I I don't want a clean like I don't want food plots necessary to always look like a lawn. Like 
it's not a lawn it's a food plot yeah and with that being said that kind of goes into the other way uh, the other management technique that you can use to offset cost or or not spend as much money every single year and that's let's say you have three acres that's planting an acre and a half every year and letting the other acre and a half set fallow for that year so let's just say you plant a acre of corn and two acres of soybeans you can let that acre of corn set fallow the next year and let the ragweed and these other beneficial weeds that almost hurts to say that it hurts because it has such a negative connotation with it yes so it, it's mind-boggling that let's we're, say people are even these listening other to this right now native forages oh nice substitute. In. so for me i look at a a field of a fallow field of corn and automatically there's ragweed both species of ragweed there's uh pokeberry there's all kinds of other native weeds Ugh, native forages filling in that deer love. And now it's also great cover for not only the deer, but turkey poults, quail, everything. Doves. Uh, doves, yeah. And so look at it from that of saying, okay, if I let it set fallow, I'm still going to have gr- pretty doggone good forage, but also I'm going to have a pretty good little area of cover. And it doesn't cost me any more money. No, you can you can set aside a field. Let's let's just air quote this real quick and say take it out of production. Basically, saying you're not putting resources into that field for one year, but knowing that you're still gonna get benefit because listen, these these things that are gonna come back, even though you may not like the looks of them or the fact that there is a Again, air quotes, weed growing in your food plot, the deer will appreciate, the turkeys will appreciate, the quail will appreciate it. It is still a resource and a good resource for them to be able to use, and I promise they will use it. Offset that cost, know you're going to get benefit from it, and put resources into the other you know, acreage that you have. Save a little money if you're if you're you know maybe it's a bad year in your business or whatever it may be or you just don't have time quite frankly that's a huge thing you don't have time to be able to do it don't fret don't worry about it know that okay i've got that happening there in that food plot i'm okay with that and you'll you'll see if you sit there and monitor and don't freak out about the fact that there's some weeds growing in there that hey i'm good that's a benefit to my wildlife so basically neglecting an area for a little bit kind of gives that old field aspect to it you know there's there's still a difference in old field management versus this but you will start to see the beginning stages of old field production in these areas and then the next year you're going to go in you're going to prepare the field like you normally would use herbicide in it and prepare for planting and if you do that right you put the right resources into that field and you and you prepare it and have a right um, whether it may be soybeans and you're you're doing two herbicide applications to control some weeds to get the best stand that year or maybe it's you're playing a high diversity mixture where you have different things growing at different times and you're never letting sunlight really get down to the um, the soil level to 
grow those weeds, you know, you're doing a good job of continuing producing forage in that plot the next year. And don't worry about, you know, there might be some extra weed seed in that, that seed bed. If you, if you put your energy and resources into that field the next year, don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. It ain't all bad that you see some ragweed growing in your field. No, that, that to me, rag, ragweed is dogged by so many people. And it's, I, I understand why. I mean, it's, it certainly is a pain in late summer when it's pollinating. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if, we, if there was any other species, let's just say, I'll just say corn out there. Corn pollinated during that time of the year, and it covered so many acres of the landscape. It, we would be hating it just as much as we hate ragweed, just because the fact that it clogs up our sinuses. Um, but ragweed's a fantastic thing to see growing. What's our next one, Matt? We've got logging. Oh, logging. This is a so, big one. To me, this is a this is kind of the, one of the biggest questions. When we go from real estate to consulting, everywhere we go, it's like, okay, for some reason, when we see a stand of timber, we automatically think, okay, is there timber value? And sometimes, a lot of times, there's not timber value. But in some instances, there can be a great value in a mature oak forest. Um, and if we're looking for ways, and I, I think we all should, I think we should all be looking for ways to make some income on our farm. I, I This was a debate I saw several weeks ago on, uh, I think it was Habitat Managers, of when it comes to timber management, this guy was, or I saw where people were really promoting hinge cutting and what they were doing to their timber was just honestly destroying the potential of ever having any income there because they were hinge cutting oaks and pretty good looking oaks like young oaks not not value as far as t- basically timber value. The, the next crop yeah that could be there and they were cutting it because they said they they weren't worried about making money they were more worried about just improving the habitat and to me i was just it was very a it was a a negative mindset to me because you can make money in your timber but still provide fantastic habitat for your wildlife you know i I think i think that there's oftentimes practices you know let's say hinge cutting or, or tsi gets associated with an age class or a size like a diameter of trees versus a species of trees if that makes sense so instead of selecting or knowing tree ID or whatever it may be is saying, oh, well, that's not a big tree, doesn't have much potential, I'm going to hinge it, or I'm just going to cut it, or whatever whatever it may be. But it goes beyond that when we think of habitat and improving the habitat. Yeah, it may not be pro- producing you know, something right now at this current time, but if I were to let that one go, take out the very large tree that's next to, open up the canopy, I can let that tree flourish, and I can hinge the maples that are surrounding it and now i have hinged maples i have a young tree growing back basically to take up a lot of the space that the large mature oak did while still getting a lot of explosion of growth from the sunlight because the canopy was opened so it's not always about oh it's a four inch diameter tree let me just hinge this joker i'm i'm not gonna see it make money in my lifetime let's just go ahead and hinge it that's like complete opposite of the way yeah. we think is. We got to think long term, longevity, 
um, of a forest stand and not just think here and now because there's others there's alternatives to the here and now I want production you can still get that but maybe maybe a selective cut in the timber is more of the route that you need to go versus hinging all the mid-story or the the medium-sized trees think of it in that nature versus I'm just going to get in there and just go to town yeah let's think long term uneven age man uneven age timber management and that kind of goes with when i had grandpa on the podcast a couple weeks ago maybe a month ago now he talked about how the the farmers the land the landowners would gradually harvest the timber themselves and haul it off to sell it so that just over time there was always trees being cut so there was always sunlight hitting the forest floor so there was always these thickets or areas of of growth native vegetation growing in the timber now we don't have that a lot it's either it's cut like crazy or it's not cut at all and and this whole uneven age timber management or selective cut as you said would be a fantastic way to make some money but also provide more cover and forage for the wildlife we talked in a couple podcasts ago about the amount of forage available in closed canopy mature timber versus young forest and the and the data suggests that there's a huge difference in forage. Basically, it's a buffet versus nothing. Um, <laughs> and so we definitely want to consider the benefits of managing timber. Now, let's say there's not a uh, there's not a lot of timber value there, but you still have closed canopy forest. What can you do? That's when you start having to look at. TSI, and and that, when we mention TSI, oftentimes that kind of, and I see this on social media, but it gets correlated with income-related projects, and TSI is only so you can make money on your timber down the road. That's if if you're thinking that, try to hear me out. That's not how we're looking at it. We're looking at it as how can we make income down the road, but also remove these trees that aren't of any value, and let's let the healthier trees, so the trees that are going to be healthier and have more income, let's let them flourish while the trees that are twisted up, maybe they're already getting choked out due to competition. Let's go ahead and remove those and let whatever's below them grow better. And that may be early successional or some other type of plant that can provide more forage or cover for the wildlife. So TSI is just looking at a way we can make money down the road, but also thin out all the competition. And really, if you've got a chainsaw, the income that or the, the money you have to put into making a difference is gas and oil for that joker. Or a hatchet and a bottle of herbicide yeah. and ibuprofen for your elbow after you're swinging the hatchet all day. That's it. You have to get Tommy John surgery after that. <laughs> and that's why when I think, I'm not sure where it's at in your notes, but I know it's on there, is if we're looking at a huge project, or, or, or let's just say it's 50 acres and it's all timber and there's no chance of having food plots, this is where you really need to focus on prioritizing certain areas and starting there first. Take a two-acre south-facing slope and say, okay, this is where I'm going to start. I know I can knock this out in a day. I'm going to go in there and every tree that's not providing any income now or down the road, I'm going to go ahead and cut it or hinge it or hack and squirt and remove it and let some 
sort of native vegetation below on the forest floor take over. And I think the important thing right there from a management and certainly a hunting benefit is the I'm either going to cut it, I'm either going to hinge it, or I'm going to hack it. Oh, and one other thing, I'm going to let it stay. Ooh, okay, there's four different things, four decisions that you need to make before you get to every single stem you see that what what am I going to do with this tree? And, and that decision is based off of tree species, age, where it's at within this two-acre plot, and what you want, what the goals are down the road. I want those two-acre highly managed areas to be productive for bedding cover and for long-term value of the property. And that's a decision that you have to make, but what you, those four options allow you to do or create within those areas is diversity that uneven age regeneration and you're producing cover now at the ground level and that might be in the in the form of uh, brambles that come back that might be the form of grasses that come back or it could be a re-sprout a stump sprout from a maple tree that you decide to cut and actually not use herbicide on because you wanted the additional forage and structure within the two acres Or you just forgot to put herbicide on it. Or you walked away accidentally. (laughs) Yeah, or your elbow was hurting too bad and you had to walk back to the house. Whatever it may be. But having those options is extreme benefit to those areas. You know, you don't want... I don't say you don't want to. Or you could save time and money by just hacking a tree versus cutting it down. Or whatever it may be. But, you know, that's another podcast I think that we need to do is talk about, hey, these are... When we're creating bedding areas... A lot of times what we see are these species. Here's what we would do in the situation. We would cut it. We would hack it. We would walk away. Mm-hmm. One of the two or three or four, whatever it may be. We'll cover that one day. One day. We have a long list of topics to cover. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, That's good. Well, plenty of content for years to come. Um, for me, I think we pretty well covered TSI. But one of the things you said it earlier kind of gets me going is – Whenever we talk about TSI and, okay, well, it's not going to provide, this tree is never going to provide any income to me, that's a pretty selfish thing to say or think because we like to think about it, okay, now, what's what's most beneficial to this land right now and what's most beneficial to future generations? So if I let a young white oak grow and express itself and remove the competition around it um let's say it's a young white oak that's a good straight good looking tree but it's only six inch dbh um and there's a bunch of maples and hickories around it and i remove those i'm i'm never going to see that thing make money but maybe my kids or grandkids will or something happens let's hope doesn't but somebody else owns the farm um and they're going to make income off that that's just what to me i think of Land management is not managing the land myself. And I forget who quoted this, but it's look at the land as being borrowed for from our children. I think it was Roosevelt. Was it? I think so. And anyway, that's kind of the way we want to look at it is, yeah, sure, it's not going to provide any income to me, but it may for somebody one day. Well, and, and that's, a, that's an incredible point and, and one that should be thought before you go in and start doing these practices. But... You know, here's the other thing is you're, you're, you're creating food. And, and when we're talking about cost saving, cost effective management, you know, the input 
maybe a chainsaw, but you can use that for many, many years. But you're you're putting food on your landscape and not really having to pay much for it. Like now, if you have this food throughout your property, think about the money you'd have to save. You could save um, basically not having to put money out for bait piles. You know, that's a that's a huge um, cost cost for for a property. If you if you're a person who puts that out. Um, for months throughout a year or, or every month during the year. Um, you can let your property produce the forage and save that money. And that's a huge, huge possibility for you. Um, and you maybe have to have less food plots. You know, that's another option. If you have if you have food throughout your entire landscape, those food plots during the certain months of the year could be high, high, high quality forage and great place to congregate deer, that's going to improve your hunting versus having food plots spread throughout your entire place. That, that kind of goes, I don't know where it's at on your notes, but food plots, crop fields, bait piles aren't the only way you can provide food for your wildlife. No, 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 no. And I think that's, for some reason, when you look at a property dealing with real estate and consulting, for Matt and I, um, one of the biggest questions is, is there any flat ground? Is there any bottom ground that I can get some food on there? Well, a lot of times those two things increase the price of the property. And so if you're on a budget trying to buy land, um, sometimes you got to look at the rougher stuff and it's going to be more affordable, but then you can find other ways to provide food. For sure. For sure you can. One one other one we we kind of, I think we accidentally skipped over a little bit on the whole sharecropping um, when we talked about food plots and fields and such like that. This is the option to lease that out if you've got open ground. Yeah, contact a local farmer, get some revenue, get whatever it may be. There's some areas of the country that are getting a hundred, two hundred dollars per acre. You know that that's ideal crop ground, but you know even if you get if you got a five acre field and you're getting thirty bucks an acre for it. Cool, man. Use that somewhere else yeah. on the property. That's income that you would otherwise not have. And and trust me when I say this, the if you have the right farmer in place and, and you've you've done the interview process, you've you've looked through some people and you've selected a guy, he's the best guy in the neighborhood. Hopefully he's making the decision. You know, his goal is to get the highest yield off of that acreage he can. So hopefully he's gonna be making the right decisions. You know, thinking of soil management, thinking of of high crop yields, you know, putting the right amendments in, doing the right practices, and quite frankly, he's got the best equipment to be able to do that, and he's probably going to do a better job of making food on that property versus, you know, possibly your food plot um, techniques or your 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 attempts. That's not a dig. That's just the the, the he to do a better job than us. So. Use that to your advantage, and you know maybe it's okay. He's going to pay me one hundred and eighty dollars, and I'm going to pay him to leave some some uh, crops standing. You know, put that money back into the property and use that as a food resource. Uh, it's it's awesome. The, as, the, as it's Gabe Brown limitless. says, sign the back of the check, not the front. That's it. And this is right in our wheelhouse. With when you think about the Prairie Hollow property, there's a couple twenty plus acre fields that. <laughs> we could devote to let's make that all standing corn. That gets pretty doggone expensive. It's time consuming too to be able to plant that, to be able to treat that acreage right throughout entire, you know, we travel a lot. Most people who have honey properties, they work for a living, man. Yeah. 
And so what we do is we rent out the the 20 plus acre fields to a local farmer and he plants corn. And then he may occasionally leave, let's just say he usually the plan is to cut it for silage and then return and plant some sort of forage uh cover crop for the winter months. So basically then we get a food plot, but in certain years he's he's picked the corn and there's a lot of spilled grain and then he plants a wheat or a, another type of um forage for the for the fall or cover crop. So we still get food. You get food and you get an income off of that acreage and that makes the 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 landowner of the lease happy. That's a good thing. Yeah, fantastic thing. It makes us happy we get to hunt it and it's still a great attraction to uh an area of the farm and I mean a big attraction, 20 plus acre in certain areas, pretty doggone good. Mhm. So mm-hmm. You can, and the other options, let's just say you're not in an, in an area where there's a lot of crop. If you have a big pasture, let's just say you have no cows on your farm. And so you just lease out the hay rights. And so they cut this fescue field and they cut it, get some hay off of it. And then the rest of the year it just sits and it's just a, a pasture or a hay, a field that gets cut. So it's pretty short during the fall. Another thing you can do is, Find a farmer who would want to plant that in alfalfa. Now we have something that you went from fescue, which didn't provide any forage and not very good cover, to now you plant alfalfa. You're still making money, but also providing forage for the wildlife. And th- this is a, a extremely real-life practice. We were just on property last week. We talked about it in the podcast. And those landowners are going to be doing that. They've got orchard grass and fescue in, in a, several of their fields, and they're going to be actively converting that into alfalfa and they're getting more they they actually don't sell their alfalfa or their their hay they have horses and livestock however if they were to do so you would get more money per bale off of alfalfa than you would the other hay <clears throat> excuse me and you'd probably get an extra cutting or two in those areas throughout the entire year so I don't know. For me, it, it's, it's a win-win. I, I, deer, if you've ever hunted deer over or close to alfalfa fields, you know the power of the attraction. And now we're saying, hey, there's there's a potential for, for more income. If you've got a guy, a farmer, who's going to you know foot the bill and, and, and put that, convert that to alfalfa, shake his hand, sign the deal, write up a nice contract and say, thank you, sir. That's an awesome opportunity for your property and the wildlife on your property. An- another option with that would be put it into crops, let some farmer plant it in corn or soybeans, and you keep the data on that for three years or five years or however however long it is. Keep it in crops to where when that's finished, you can enter that into a government program like CRP and convert it back to a more beneficial bedding area yeah you you may find that you know what that portion of the property that field if i think about this i could improve my hunting by actually taking it out of crops now it's been a crop for three years and if i have bedding there then this bottleneck is going to improve or this food plot over here is going to have much more activity or it might be a a south-facing slope on a field i'm going to put that into crp you just have you have a lot you have a lot of options basically what we're saying or you Um, take the income you've made off of the leasing out the the ground to crops mm-hmm. and you've used that money to create more openings in your timber yeah 
and then you have food plots and you've taken the money from that and you continue to improve to, to where you have food plots in specific areas and now you've converted the crop field, the original crop field after this certain amount of years back to a bedding area. You know, the possibilities are endless is basically what we're saying. And it's not just a clear cut, hey, this is the way I have to do, I have to front, front the money up front you know, year one at a property when I really want to start doing some habitat, you know, that's not necessarily the case. And there's options. And don't get yourself stuck in a mindset where, well, it's either this or that, and I'm, you know, stuck in a rut. Like, you, there's options and cost-saving options. And those are the ones that I like. Um, so what's it? Oh, we haven't talked yet about prescribed fire. I, I was hoping you were going to go there. Ooh. When you look at what's the biggest bang for your buck, how can I improve my entire farm or a big check section? I almost combined the two, a, a big section of my land. How can I improve it? Well, one of the biggest ways is prescribed fire. When you look at the amount of it, improvement across your landscape with that's very cost effective prescribed fire is going to be hard to beat and so you can burn 100 acres or 200 acres in a section in one day and now have this huge shot of green growth green forage for the wildlife and also help stimulate more early successional habitat um, just by doing a prescribed fire. Now, of course, you want to make sure you have insurance on the farm or insurance for your lease, whatever it is, before you do something like that. You're trained professionals or you've, you've gone through the class and you've gathered some buddies up and you're all going to burn together. It's important that you have that. Um, but it's also, I'm trying to look through here my, my notes, but whenever you look at prescribed fire, it's always going to be more beneficial in an area that's not completely closed canopy forest. I feel like we've talked about this a lot, and I think it's very important, but people a lot of times talk about prescribed fire and how beneficial it is. But if you're in a closed canopy forest, you're only going to be so, you're kind of limited on how beneficial it can really be. So that's why it's important to continue the TSI, open up that canopy, and then do prescribed fire because you're going to have a lot better uh, regeneration um, in those areas and a lot more to burn baby and a lot more Woo. to burn yeah for sure so prescribed fire is a very cost effective way to improve the entire yeah, landscape large scale oh. it's, it's a huge improvement i i think about you know we, we often talk about like the importance or the the emphasis a lot of people put on on food plots and yes you get a, a high tonnage per acre on those areas but really it's it's a very small fraction of a property typically and and prescribed fire can can over you're you're just you're just treating let's say you're you're bringing attention to so many more acres on a property and and the return is so huge so yeah. huge on a place and i think let's just use my farm for example 282 acres um, only six of that is food plots mm -hmm. but with our burn units we are going to burn probably almost 75 80 acres every year it's right. going to have great forage. And then, so every year, so even though it's not, one area's not burned that year, it was burned the year prior and it still has a lot of great regeneration growing there. Mm -hmm. So that's something to really consider when you're trying to get the biggest bang for your buck and you're managing on a budget. Now, all that being said, there's a lot of things we mentioned 
there are government programs to help offset costs for that. Prescribed fire is one of the biggest ones. So if you go in and you sign up for prescribed fire, there's a lot of, uh, there's a good chance you can get government programs and help offset costs for that. Yes, there's paperwork. Yes, there's some things that you have to follow. However, put the property first. Think of the benefit that it's going to have on that property. You know, you can get paid for putting in fire lines like you can use for your road access, you know, property access. That's a huge benefit. And you also get paid to do that. And then you get paid to burn or or an extreme large portion of that that cost is is cost shared. There's, you know, really when you think about it and you utilize those programs that are available to you, you can do a huge amount of work for, for little expenses out of your pocket. And, and I know there, there, I don't know, there's that negative connotation, I think with government programs signing up for, for having, you know, them government folks on your property, but think outside the box a little bit and, and consider it. It's not for everyone, but there, it is an option saying, Hey, here are the possibilities. Here's what it would look if we do this amount of acreage every single year. Really, I can handle that number. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so, in a nutshell, when we're talking about managing land, managing property on a budget, um, ways that you can make income, renting out crops. So, renting out the open ground to a farmer um, and letting him plant some sort of crops there. That's just putting money in your pocket and probably if he's planting soybeans or alfalfa, that's also forage for the wildlife. Or if it's corn, it'll be great forage later on after it matures. Um, any spill grain or areas that he doesn't hit with the combine, that's food for and, your wildlife. And, and as you are running out the crops, consider consider the, the possibilities of cover crops there too mm-hmm. on a property. Having that food resource during the fall month and improving soil health. Put that in the huge contract. Benefit. Bingo. I think I'd love to start seeing more people do that requesting or, or writing it in the contract. Hey, if you're going to, if you're going to basically rent the crops from me on my property, I need to see you, you putting your best foot forward and, and basically planting a cover crop in these fields afterwards. Here are my concerns. Here's why. Will you do this? The next thing to provide income is timber harvest. If there's any timber value on the property, go in there and harvest some trees, put that money in your pocket, or put it towards other projects on the farm. Um, that's a that's a huge way in timber country to make money on your land. Other one, of course, as we just prior mentioned, government programs. That's another way to make some income or help greatly um, remove the initial cost or sticker price on doing some of these big management practices, prescribed fire, TSI, um, anything like that. Real, real quick, I, I'm going to share Laddie's example. Laddie's a landowner from Delaware that we went to, and, and he, for the past 15, 16 years, has utilized government programs to not only convert his property from open fields, open crop fields in the year 2000 to wildlife mecca, um, he's done that through government programs and has done a lot of the work himself and been able to basically feed himself off that money. But he's completely changed that property, the look of the property, by utilizing the opportunities that these government programs have offered him and the property. It, it's an amazing transformation and a great story. Yep. I, I love it. I think it's awesome. Um, I think we're out of time. We are wrapping things up. So... 
anyway, uh, with that being said, all that being said, if this is stuff you like, of course, please go give us a review or a like or share it. Um, also, if you have any questions on consultation or would like our opinion on your farm, give us an email at Info, info at, at TV. Yeah, you like that? Ooh, simultaneous twinning. Don't ever say that again. And so, <laughs> he likes, he likes um, it when I do that. I think, oh, and also if you're interested in real estate, um, we're also real estate agents. So, bingo. If you're thinking about buying a property or selling your property, give us a shout and uh, shoot us an email and uh, we'll help you any way we can. And uh, anyway. Matt, you got anything else to add? Cost-effective habitat management. I think one of the most underrated things people can do. Like it's they're not utilizing. People Ugh. don't talk about. It, I think because it's like, I, it's like talking about your bank account. Yeah. But I think everybody is concerned about it. So it's definitely something that we need to talk about. Hey, so here I, we are. I like minimal inputs with great return. That's what we talked about today. That can make a property greatly improve itself. Think outside the box. That's all I got. All right. Sounds good. We'll catch you guys next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there. We're answering on the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?